following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, just wanted to echo what Reggie said about welcoming all the moms here and uh, appreciating you and everything that you do um, for all the families that are represented here. Um, just hope that it's a special day for all of you. That uh, Sometimes it's kind of you feel in this weird middle zone, right, because you may have moms as well and trying to honor them, but some of you may say, but I'm a mom too and stuff, and it's and so I, I understand the generational thing, but hopefully somewhere in all the extended family gatherings and things like that, the moms in this church will not uh, be forgotten. Um, we want to continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke in our Encountering Jesus series with uh, part two of the parable of the prodigal son, or what we're calling the, the lost sons. Uh, we started it uh, the previous week, and we want to continue on finishing up with the message of this parable this morning. And so we want to take a look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Luke 15, 11 to 32. If your Bible's with you, would invite you to follow in your Bibles, uh, or you can also follow here in the text on the screen. And it reads, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the son and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out. And he said there was any out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat 
that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, stir our hearts with a message that for many of us is so familiar, one that we know by heart and yet may really not take to heart. I pray that uh, the freshness of that gospel message would once again stir in our hearts and remind us of the God that we worship and what it means for us as your people to gather together and reflect that same heart in the way that we live our lives. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we started into this journey of exploring the story of the prodigal uh, son, which is the classical name for this story, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, in the first sermon, we looked at the story of the younger son who basically demanded his portion of his inheritance well before his father had passed away and, in essence, what am- amounted to saying to his father, I, I wish you dead. I, I just want to cash out what's due me and let me have uh, what you owe and I will, I'll be okay, I'll be good. And then after that, he ends up leaving home and distancing himself even further from his family by going to what Jesus calls a far country. Um, It's this place where your greatest dreams may come true. It's this place where it's life without limits, where everything is possible. But one of the things we saw as the story of these lost sons unfolded was the promise of that far country is often a lie. Um, it promises so much and yet ultimately ends up taking more than giving and eventually will take everything from you. The younger son eventually ends up starving among pigs. And I think the promise of the far country is something that definitely tempts all of us, doesn't it? This idea that there is a better place out there where my dreams can come true. But often in pursuing those dreams, what we ultimately end up discovering is that those dreams were actually a lie. Drug addiction never leads to a lasting high or permanent satisfaction, but eventually leaves you in the gutter. Acquiring more and more things and the lust of materialism never leads to true happiness, but only greater debt and buyer's remorse. Those things that look so great at the store never feel as good when you finally get them home, do they? Pornography can never provide true intimacy or satisfaction, but leads only to greater emptiness and shame. And I think the truth is that for some of us, we've gone on this journey of the younger son, haven't we? That For some of us, that is our story. You've traveled to some pretty dark places in your life that have left it as absolutely no doubt that you need rescuing. It's clear to everyone who knows you that you're lost and you need to be saved. Your testimony is clear that you need a savior. You cannot save yourself. 
but you need God to rescue you. But at the same time, I'm guessing that for many of you here in this room today, you actually can't identify very easily with this younger son. Because in truth, you've never actually wandered that far from home. Um, You may have been tempted to, but the truth is, you've never really dared to venture off into the far country. Uh, And if you identify more with the older brother in this story, then the message today is for you. At a very superficial level, it looks like the older son is the good son. And the younger son is the bad son. Uh, That's the way it looks like it plays out. But as we're going to look at more closely in the story today, uh, we're going to discover that the older son was just as lost as the younger son, if not even more so. Physically, he may have never left home. But his relationship with his father was just as broken as it was with his younger brother. And I just want to play this out by making two simple observations about the older son and the way that particularly he reacted to his brother's homecoming when he finally came back uh, repentant uh, and to the, to the father. Um, the first observation is this. Observation number one is the older son's desire for justice more than grace. The party to celebrate the younger son's return is well underway before the older son ever returns home from the fields. He is out in his father's field working hard as he does every single day. And it's not until evening rolls around that the older son finally makes it back home. And after an exhausting, back-breaking day of hard labor... He approaches the home and he hears the strange noise of a party going on, of music and laughing. And this, as far as he knows, there was no banquet on the schedule. And so he, he doesn't know what's going on. And this is something very telling about the older brother. His initial reaction to hearing an unexpected party going on is not one of celebration and joy and happiness. He doesn't rush right in going, hey, what are we celebrating today? It's interesting that his gut-level instinct is one of suspicion and of aloofness and concern. He is not happy with the fact that there is a party going on when he walks and approaches the house. And so instead of entering the party, he calls one of the servants out and says, What's going on here? Why is there a party going on without me? And the servant says, Oh, you're not going to believe it. You know that crazy brother of yours? That, that kid? He came home. And your father has received him back with joy. Has fully restored him. And so he's throwing this huge party for him. He killed the fattened calf, in fact. And now everyone is in there. All the friends, all the neighbors, the whole village is in there. And they're parting it down. And when the older brother realizes what's happened... He's not filled with joy. He's not filled with happiness. He is filled with rage. He's filled with anger. He is furious at his father. 
rather than being able to celebrate in his father's joy, he is filled with anger. In other words, what the older son wants for his brother is not mercy, but justice. Justice. You know, it's hard for me to talk that openly about this, but in a lot of ways, I, I see this dynamic between these two brothers as at, at, at least at a lesser degree, having played out in my relationship with my brother. Um, I've shown you this picture before from our high school days. He always looks taller in all the pictures, not because he's taller. I'm actually a little taller than him, but he always stood in his tippy toes every time we took a picture so that he looked taller than me, okay? So that's why he looks like he's taller than me, all right? Um, my brother, as some of you know, most of you know, he's pastor at Harvest Community Church just down the neighborhood from us. Uh, he's actually a year older than me. He's about 15 months older than me. But the way things played out, I ended up having quite often to assume the role of the older brother. And the reason is because uh, there was just this restlessness within Dave uh, that constantly landed him in trouble, okay? I, it was like, for me, as an observer to his life, watching a train wreck happen over and over again, and you just can't stop it. It was a very frequent experience of mine sitting in the other room, listening to him getting yelled at by my parents for another dumb thing that he had done. You know, by the time that we reached high school, my parents sent us to the local library, public library, every day after school to study. Typical Asian parent, right? Um, the only thing is, the second we got to the library, my brother would drop me off and he wouldn't go in most days. And instead, he would, without my parents knowing it, drive off to go to a party or to hang out with his friends. And at least once during the study session, my mom would require us to call home to make sure everything is okay. Back then, there were no cell phones. So I would get on the payphone and call my mom and say, we're still alive. No one's kidnapped us. Everything is okay. We're studying hard. Don't worry about us. And my brother would pressure me to cover for him. You know, say, oh, yeah, Dave's right next to me, studying hard, too. And I grudgingly did it, but I hated it. And I would lecture him and say, you come in with me today, and you study, too. But he never did. I always went off and said, just, I'll be back at 8 o'clock to pick you up when the library closes. Until finally, one day, he got in a car accident when he was out with a girlfriend of his. And I was waiting at 8 o'clock, and he wasn't picking me up. I didn't know what was going on. And finally, my dad picked me up, and he looked angry. <laughs> he said, get in. <laughs> and I found out that my brother got in a car accident. I had to call them and get picked up because the car was ruined. And in my heart, I raised the fist to the sky and said, justice, you know, <laughs> justice. And here was the thing was, over and over again, I witnessed the unbelievable, extraordinary patience and forgiveness that my parents showed to my brother. So much so that I, began, I realized I began to assume the role of a parent toward him and would frequently yell at him because my parents would never yell at him enough. Um, the repeated grace 
that they continued to show my brother during his turbulent teenage years when he was like a runaway train with his life. Um, the truth is what often upset me. It would really bother me. Um, I didn't understand why they were tolerating his behavior year after year. And, and the other dynamic that began to ensue was that I began to feel the pressure to be the good son because of all of my brother's antics and the way that they were breaking his heart over and over again. I felt now the pressure to be the good son that my parents des- desperately wanted. I'm guessing that some of you in this room are also that good son, that good daughter. And the truth may be that you assume that role in your family, not out of some um, overflowing love for your parents, but maybe you almost felt trapped in that role, like I did. And as a result, maybe the truth is, you've grown in your resentment toward others who didn't follow that straight and narrow path that you did, who, who didn't make all the sacrifices and pay the high price of living that life that you did. For all those prodigals out there that took the shortcuts in life and never seemed to have gotten punished, if you're that older brother or older sister in this room, you know what that feels like, right? The resentment, the anger. I played by the rules. I played by the rules, and he didn't. So why should he get rewarded and not me? Henry Nowen captures the sentiment like this. The lostness of the elder son is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, and hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and likely considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless. But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person one that has remained deeply hidden, even though it has been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. Looking deeply into myself and then around me at the lives of other people, I wonder which does more damage, lust or resentment. There is so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There is so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There is so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. The lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. I know from my own life how diligently I have tried to be good, acceptable, likable, and a worthy example for others. There was always the conscious effort to avoid the pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that, there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, and even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home in my father's house. 
That is the experience of the older brother. I have done everything you've asked me to do, Father. But with each passing year of my obedience, I feel further and further from you, disconnected from you, like I don't even know you anymore. I wonder how many of us can identify with this resentment that Nowen describes toward anyone who doesn't measure up to our standards, to anyone who didn't live the life we lived or made the choices we made. Have you ever found yourself judging those around you who haven't been able to stay on the narrow path that you've stayed on? I remember on a number of occasions during my years as a student, Every once in a while, a teacher would give a quiz or a test that was so hard that the entire class bombed it. Have you ever had that experience? We all know that, right? The teacher didn't measure where the students were and ended up giving a test so difficult that everybody failed. And typically what would happen is there'd be a big uproar and all the students complain. And then, not uncommonly, the teacher would just throw out that test and say, all right, fine. I'm not going to count it. And the whole class would erupt, extolling the virtues of their merciful teacher. And I would be silently stewing in anger. Because I usually did well on those tests. (laughs) And I wanted credit. This was the assignment. You let it be known. And if nobody studied, it's their their own fault. Count the score, Lord. (laughs) Count it. Not Lord, I guess. <laughs> Count it, teacher, you know. Um, you see, to those who don't feel that they need it, mercy is perceived as a threat rather than a gift, right? If you don't think you actually need it, you feel threatened by grace. You don't welcome it because grace evens the playing field. Grace says we're all good, we're all okay, and For those of you who fought for that righteousness, that's offensive. That's not fair. That's not right. If I paid the price, everyone else ought to. This was the reaction of the older son. Don't you dare, Dad. Don't you dare. Not after everything he's done to us and our family. you got to make him pay. you got to let him know how much he hurt us what he did to us. Don't you dare forgive him this easily. What the older son craved was justice, not grace. The second observation that we can make is simply this. The older son also suffered from a sense of entitlement. It says in verse 28 to 30, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes comes, you, you, you kill the fattened calf for him. Confronted by the lavish generosity that his father shows to his returned brother. There is a deep anger and resentment that was brewing underneath the older son's heart. And the truth is, that resentment had probably been brewing for years. And now it finally explodes. 
And the truth is that anger and resentment has actually very little to do with his brother. This anger and resentment arises from the fact that the older son feels like the father owes him a debt that he's never paid up to now. You see, it's not even about his brother anymore. It's about him and his father. And what he's in essence saying is is this. I have slaved for you. I have worked for you all these years. And yet you have given me nothing. You have given me nothing. You have never given me a reward for anything I have done for you all of these years. I have never gotten what I deserved despite my faithfulness and loyalty to you. You see, the problem that the older son had with his father runs much deeper than the problem of the prodigal brother. It's this fundamental attitude that he began to adopt in life that you owe me. You owe me for what I have done. I want to illustrate the second point by showing you a video clip that comes from this movie that's pretty old now, but called Amadeus. Now, I think, admittedly, all the musical historians have ripped this movie to shreds and said it was highly fictional. That's okay. Uh, it tells a good story, okay? It, it basically tells the story of Antonio Salieri, who was an Italian composer, uh, contemporary to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as, as you all know, a re- widely recognized as one of the greatest composers who ever lived, and the rivalry that developed between the two of them. And so just as you watch this clip, it's a little bit of an extended clip. It's going to run for about eight minutes or so. I want you to just listen very carefully to the way that Salieri understands his relationship to God. Okay, so just take a look at it. For Salieri, um, that was in essence the summary of his relationship with God. I'll make a deal with you. You do this for me, and I will do this for you. You give me glory and fame, and I give you my devotion, unwavering for the rest of my life. And the truth is, everything was going according to plan. It seemed as if God was answering his prayer, giving him unparalleled success in music. And it all was going great until Wolfgang Mozart shows up on the scene. And a man who in Salieri's eyes does not deserve God's blessing suddenly is given far greater blessing than himself. And so as a result of seeing that, Salieri turns on God and says, there is no justice and eventually there is no God. And God becomes Salieri's enemy. I think the scary thing is that many Christians have that same attitude. And it's in essence this. With each good deed, God becomes our debtor. I mean, let's be honest here. Nobody says it as crassly as this. (laughs) No one prays, Lord, my debtor, (laughs) I ask you for this. But if we really spoke honestly about it, I think that's the hidden 
truth that many of us believe in. I do this for you, God, and I expect you to do this for me. One of the ways that we know that we're thinking like this is when things don't go your way. When life takes unexpected turns that are not welcomed in your life, how do you react? Because it's one thing to react sad, to feel sad about them. But if you feel angry in those moments, it may be actually revealing that you actually believe God is your debtor. That he does actually owe you something. I don't deserve this to happen in my life. I deserve better than this. Tim Keller writes, Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. With this parable, Jesus gives us a much deeper concept of sin than any of us would have if he didn't supply it. Most people think of sin as falling, failing to keep God's rules of conduct. But while not less than that, Jesus' definition of sin goes beyond it. If like the elder brother, you seek to control God through your obedience, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make him give you the things in your life you really want. It's scary, isn't it? As Keller points out, even your acts of devotion can become the very instruments used against God to drive you away from him if you are using them as an attempt to manipulate him and get him to give you the things that you really want out of life. As it applied to the Pharisees, Jesus said this in Luke 20, verse 45 to 46. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. In other words, for all of their religious devotion that looked like it was directed to God, it was really for themselves. They love the status. They love the recognition. They love the accolades and the respect of people who thought that they were so much holier than everybody else. This is the story of the older brother. In this way, the older brother was actually not very different from the younger brother at all. I mean, true, the younger brother acted recklessly, took the inheritance and blew it all on prostitutes. And it was far more dramatic. But the truth is the older brother was also using the father to get what he wanted out of life. It's just that his demands were a lot more modest in a way. I'm not asking you to go to that far country, father. I just want a little low-key party with a goat and some of my closest friends. But you never even gave me that much. And so I hate you for it. I don't even know what the point of all of this loyalty was for. If you would not even give me that one little thing. I mean, from this perspective, you could make an argument that the main difference between the two brothers 
was not about faithfulness or obedience, but it's just that one was more of a coward than the other. The older brother never had the courage to follow his dreams like his younger brother did and venture to the far country. Again, Henry Nouwen says this, In all my life I have, been harbor- I have harbored a strange curiosity for the disobedient life that I myself didn't dare to live, but which I saw being lived by many around me. I did all the proper things, mostly complying with the agenda set by the many paternal figures in my life, teachers, spiritual directors, bishops, and popes. But at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the courage to run away as the younger son did. It is strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. It is the emotion that arises when I see my friends having a good time, doing all sorts of things that I condemn. I call their behavior reprehensible or even immoral, but at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. The obedient and dutiful life of which I am proud or for which I am praised feels sometimes like a burden that was laid on my shoulders and continues to oppress me, even when I have accepted it to such a degree that I cannot throw it off. In other words, some of us are living the life of obedience like children who have to stay inside and do your homework and practice piano while all the other kids in the neighborhood get to run outside in the street and play. It's this feeling like, yes, I'm obedient, but it is a joyless, fear-driven obedience. All these years, I have been slaving for you. All of these years, I have been slaving for you. What little thing have you done for me? So as you can see, the father in this story actually has two lost sons. He has two lost sons. One of them failed spectacularly. He publicly shames his father. And then he crashes and burns in a far country only to come back home with his tail between his legs, begging to be taken back. The other more dutiful son never left home, at least outwardly obeyed his father. But as we've seen today, he was just as lost. Because the truth is, neither of them had much love for the father. Neither of them understood their father's love. Both of them were lost. And yet the father's love reaches out to both of them equally. The story closes with these lines. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, your, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It is incredible to me how tenderly the father treats the insolence of this older son, who now publicly shames his father by refusing to join the party that he's hosting for his younger son. Both are lost. Both are invited to the banquet. But the end of the story is this. They don't have the same ending. Because as strange as it sounds, the son that actually seemed more lost, more hopeless, more irredeemable, 
is the one that actually ends up in the party with the father. While the son who always stayed home is the one with his arms folded, standing outside, unable to enter and unable to join in the joy of the father. And what Jesus seems to be saying is the lostness of the older brother is oftentimes harder to redeem than the lostness of the younger one. When we're so filled with our own sense of righteousness, our own sense of having done enough to be worthy of what God gives us, then the Father says, you are more lost than you even know. You are further from my joy than you can possibly realize. And this is the heart of God for us today that I want to close with here as I wrap up. This is the story of the church because the truth is there are some older sons and daughters here and there are some younger sons and daughters here. And we're all called and invited to a common banquet to celebrate the joy of what the Father has done on our behalf. Um, it was interesting. We had a, a Friday gathering for our small group, um, fellowship time uh, at Josh and Jenny's house, and uh, uh, got into this really interesting theological discussion with our brother Charlie over there, who was talking about, just as he was meditating on this idea of uh, the prodigal son, he said, you know, what's really interesting would be if someone made a movie about the day after the banquet, you know, when everyone has to sit at the breakfast table and all kind of look at each other, you know. And when he was sharing that, I mean, it just really, you know, I was like, that's, you got to make that movie, you know, uh, because that would be an awesome movie, wouldn't it? Everyone there, you know, at the breakfast table going, how do we move on from this? You know, how, how do we actually move on as a family from this? Because that's the story of the church, isn't it? That's the story of us how we come together as the redeemed people of God, knowing all of us have a checkered past, knowing all of us have messed up, but the truth is some worse than others. And yet, how do we forgive one another these failures? How do we extend the grace that the Father has shown in a, as a church family together? That's the story of ICC. What we're invited to do is to enter into the mercy of the Father by the way that we treat one another. The other implication is the way that we open this invitation to even those who are outside our church and to simply say, we worship a God who invites you to this banquet. Whatever journey that brought you to the doorstep of that banquet, no matter what far places and dark things you've done, or even if you are that self-righteous Pharisee that has always been in the Father's house and yet doesn't realize how lost you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Father's love goes out freely to all to come and be a part of this banquet. And I think that's the heart of evangelism. That's the heart of what it means to share our faith with others, is to let them know we're all in the same boat together. But we've all been given the invitation into the Father's love. Let's pray. As we think about this story of the two lost sons, I, I want to invite you just for a minute as the worship team comes to lead us in a time of closing, just to send a, spend a brief moment of reflection, thinking about, you know, what, what is your story? Where has your journey taken you? 
For some of you, like I said, you are that younger son. You've gone to some pretty dark places in your life. And there is, I think, probably a pretty ready recognition in your heart that, uh, man, you know, I really messed it up in a lot of ways in my life. I've hurt a lot of people. My life is broken. And I just don't know where to go from here. And the message of this prodigal son story is that God's love is there to cover your shame, to fix and heal your brokenness, that there's no far country so distant that God cannot find you and rescue you. And then there are also those of us here who are the older brother, who never strayed very far from home, who never had the courage to live that crazy life, Although maybe the truth is we kind of looked at it from a distance with envy and always wondered what that reckless life would have been like. But the truth is you're like that older brother. You've never gone far from home. And yet maybe as a result of that, you're further from God than you actually realize. Because within your heart is a spirit of entitlement. God owes me. He owes me at least this much. I'm not asking for killing the fattened calf. I'm not asking for the world but at least a little goat to celebrate with my friends. Is that really too much to ask of you, God? Is that the least you can do for me, for what I've done for you? And maybe the truth is you feel more threatened by grace because it suddenly evens the playing field. And you have worked all your life to gain what you have in your life. And for you, life is about getting what you deserve. And what God says is if you cry too much for justice, you don't realize what you're asking for. Because if you want to confront my justice, you will not stand. You will not stand on that judgment day. You don't know what you ask for when you ask for justice. What your prayer ought to be is for mercy. Because all of you are lost. All of you are more lost than you can possibly realize. But this is where the invitation of the banquet is for us all. Come no matter what your journey has been. Come to the table. Come to the banquet and celebrate in your Father's joy because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We just pray for a few moments like that and our worship team will come and close us out in a song of response. Let's pray.